Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 28, Suicide Squad Comic-Con Trailer. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DCCU apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, a first look at the Suicide Squad and listener mailbag. This podcast dives deep into the DCCU. To answer the critics and the confused, this show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love the DCCU and who love to chew their food. It's taking some work, but I finally have them. The worst of the worst. Let's just say I put him in a hole and threw away the hole. There's rumors, Amanda, that some of them have abilities. Oh, yeah. I have seen things. Maybe Superman was some kind of beacon for them to creep back from the shadows. I want to assemble a task force of the most dangerous people on the planet who I think can do some good. They're bad guys. Exactly. And if anything goes wrong, we blame them. We have built-in deniability. What makes you think you can control them? Because getting people to act against their own self-interest is what I do for a living. to know is you work for me. So that's it, huh? We're the Patsies. We're some kind of suicide squad. Let's go save the world. Crazy ones. Huh? I only see oh, I'm not gonna kill you. That the joke was on me. 
I'm just gonna hurt you. Really, really bad. I don't think the Suicide Squad first look was meant to be examined under a microscope, so I'm not intending to do a shot-by-shot analysis like I did with Batman v Superman. We're over a year out, and we were treated to three whole minutes, but I think it was mostly meant to tease the tone and the confidence and the approach. So far, I'm really encouraged. The look is cinematic, and the tone still has weight to it. Despite an eclectic cast of crazy characters, the material still feels like it's being treated seriously, and sincerely. And that was my main reservation about Suicide Squad. I'm always open to seeing new interpretations, but pleasantly surprised to see that this is very much something that could take place in the world of Batman v Superman, even if it has its own spin-on style. And even if the filmmakers are taking the film seriously, the characters have an innate sense of levity to them, which makes sense. Superman and Batman take it personal when innocents are at risk. But someone like Lex Luthor can revel in that situation. Likewise, our Suicide Squad can quip when the bodies pile up in a way that heroes generally can't or shouldn't unless living in a world without consequences. There's more that's clever about the Suicide Squad's place in the lineup, but that's another episode I mainly wanted to give my overall impressions. But that said, this wouldn't be my show if I couldn't provide you with some sort of analysis, and sometimes we can get that by looking at the metrics. If you break down the trailer by shots, there are a little under 90 shots, not counting the title card, logos, and things like that. Now, this analysis isn't weighted for screen time or impact or focus, but here are the rough figures for your consideration. Waller appears in eight shots and has about one-third of the lines in this first look. Harley appears in 23 shots, not counting group shots, and has about one-fourth of the lines. Floyd appears in 11 shots, three with his daughter, and gets two lines. June appears in about six shots. Flag is featured in about four shots, two with Floyd and one with June. Diablo is featured in six shots, with two of them being group shots, and Croc is featured in five shots, three of those being group shots. Boomerang is featured in five shots, with only one solo shot, but he does get a line of dialogue, seemingly about Harley. Katana has two shots by herself, and shares one with Boomerang, and has some other group shots. Slipknot appears only once by himself. Joker has six shots, one shared with Harley, one with Batman, and about three lines. Now again, this film is more than a year out, but that breakdown tends to affirm what we already knew about the relative interest and marketability of the characters, and perhaps a glimpse into their relative importance in this ensemble film. So the last time we really looked at Suicide Squad in episode 22, we went in order of weirdness, and this time I think I'm going to go in the speculated order of importance with Joker and Waller in the mix. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, I think you know that I'm pretty ambivalent about things like final scores or ranks, but obsessed with metrics and the reasons why, as opposed to a final position. So take this ranking in that spirit. Another time of day or a slightly different analysis, and I could easily be convinced or convince myself to change the order in a heartbeat. So number one on our list is Slipknot, and I'm putting him here as the most obscure character on the team who barely appears in this first look. It's easy to want to write him off as cannon fodder or someone who dies immediately. Many are pegging him as the person to demonstrate that kill condition on the squad, often a bomb implanted in the brain or a cuff over a limb. However, from the footage, we know that Slipknot makes it into the field. So clearly, 
Waller didn't make him into an example to prove the threat of a bomb. Personally, I'm curious if Slipknot is even a convict, since we never see him incarcerated. In fact, I wonder if they're going to retire or modify the failsafe on the Suicide Squad. We don't quite know the rules or the tone of the DCCU going forwards, but blowing up their heads might be a tad conspicuous and work against deniability. Maybe. Additionally, if you're surrounded by soldiers, the need for a failsafe might be a little less pressing, especially if your cooperation can be assured by some other coercion or duress. Conversely, if there still are bombs, why would any of the convicts doubt Waller or require a test or a demonstration? They would already know that Waller has thrown away their hole, so to speak, that they weren't being treated with the full dignity of their civil rights. So the fact that Waller would implant bombs into them would be completely plausible from their perspective. So you wouldn't need Slipknot to test that threat because Waller is really, really persuasive. Anyways, if there are still bombs, at least we know Slipknot makes it onto the streets. Next up is Killer Croc, and he's important because his looks push the edge of reality and what you're willing to accept and believe. If his look doesn't work, then that can take you out of the film every time he's on screen. The trailer does something pretty smart, and that's to show you an attack on Arkham with half a dozen masked gunmen. And in a weird way, that sets up the norm for this world, where at any moment you might run into somebody with an eyeball for a head or perhaps a goat's head. And that sets you up to expect the weird. And it also sort of says, see, this is what a Halloween costume looks like when you compare it to Croc. We see Croc completely restrained, but also a brief shot of his lips being pulled back into a toothy snarl. And it works. It is definitely right up there on the edge, though. But it hasn't gone over it, at least for me. Of course, we don't see Croc say or do anything, really. So he's on this list as slightly less important than our next person, Katana. Like Croc, Katana doesn't get any lines, but she ones up Croc with two of her shots. The first one where she throws Boomerang up against the wall with her blade against his throat. And the second one where, maskless, she returns her katana to her saya, uh, a scabbard or a sheath, with a pained expression on her face. So we know that her character is going to interact with the others. We know that she has a temper and a limit or a button that Boomerang can push. And we can see that she's going through something. And that thing is going to get her to emote. So at least at this point, she has more to do than Croc. There's also a brief shot of her final out of the wreckage while drawing her sword, showing that she's ready for action. Like Slipknot, she's never shown in incarceration, and we're never given clear indication that she's a prisoner, which may ring true to her more heroic origins. We'll talk more about it later, but Katana is a decidedly cultural character, drawing from her Japanese heritage, which plays well with the international flair of our next character, who hails from Down Under. The Flash Rogue Boomerang is next, and the only character who gets a line outside of the top four characters and the admiral who dined with Waller. The edit of the line suggests that he's in the same scene with Harley, but their respective backdrops make that a little less clear. And with this squad, Crazy One probably doesn't narrow it down all that much. We've seen that he's able to anger Katana. However, Boomerang is the only character in the entire first look who doesn't give us a hint into his abilities. With Slipknot, we get his grapple gun in his gear. Croc wears his abilities on his face. Katana 
carries one, Diablo plays with flames, Deadshot with guns, and Harley demonstrates her agility, Joker his ruthlessness, and Waller her manipulation. Flag commands troops, and Enchantress summons to mind the occult. But besides being scummy and kind of big, we have no idea just from this first look, why he belongs on the squad. And which, for me, right now is just fine, because I think there's a lot of cool things that we might see from his specialty. Jai Courtney was born and raised in Sydney, so it's nice to hear him speak closer to his native accent. And Boomerang has traditionally brought friction into the Suicide Squad. A little grit in the gears, which is critical, because if and when they operate too much like a well-oiled machine, we sometimes forget that these are convicts. Speaking of which we don't see Boomerang incarcerated either. But it's a lot easier to imagine him in prison than, say, Katana or Slipknot. With our next squad member, we don't have to imagine. For Diablo, in this first look, we get to see him incarcerated, and we get to see a hint of those conflicting values with images of presumably his family and perhaps a prayer candle, another cultural approach to a character. We get the suggestion of his powers with the blowing out of the match and holding up his hands in a way that suggests the command over flame while being doused with water and then being flushed out of a tanker. While Diablo doesn't get any lines, I get the sense that he's going to be more important to the story than many might initially guess. Despite barely being on anyone's radar, he's an interesting character because he plays strongly into themes that David Ayer loves to deal with. Good and evil in gang life, faith in the face of the horrors of combat. In the comics, Diablo spent a good amount of his arc tormented by his powers and his faith, considering them a penance, and then sometime later, a switch flip, and he considered himself an instrument of retribution. There are a lot of ways Ayer can play with a character with those angles in his canon, but especially when the character is so obscure and in that sense a canvas to work with. And while that seems to apply to many of the Suicide Squad as a whole, it definitely applies to our next guy, Flag. Now, honestly, he doesn't really do anything interesting on his own, but I sort of view all the soldiers as a proxy for Flag in his command. Probably the most interesting thing he does in the trailer is in civilian garb and with more or longer hair, he seems to share an intimate moment with June, who's wearing professional clothing and a lanyard around her neck. This seems to suggest that Flag has a personal stake in this, which goes beyond patriotism, and that he had feelings for June, presumably before the formation of the squad and her transformation into Enchantress, and before he shaved his hair. So at this point, we still have no idea what the true evil, threat, or villain of this bad guy ensemble film is. For all we know, Flag's personal history with June might add a dimension or layer if his mission is to terminate the Enchantress, but also if he has his own personal agenda to rescue June. So although we don't really see Flag do anything, his men have a presence and his ties to Enchantress definitely raise his importance in this film. So speaking of Enchantress, for me, Enchantress was the biggest question mark and the mystery that I'm the most interested in. She represents magic on a more tangible level than anything else in this world. As I've suggested before, I think Suicide Squad is going to deal with magic way more than you'd expect. Even Diablo's powers might be dismissed as the product of the metagene, which he chooses 
to interpret through a spiritual lens. But with Enchantress, it's hard to get away from the idea that there's magic in this world, and that it's powerful and scary, but not so powerful that magic isn't afraid of guns. And perhaps why they disappeared into the shadows, until Superman showed that the supernatural could be bold again. Besides the magic, Enchantress hasn't appeared in any of the set photos, suggesting that she's not a part of the field team, but perhaps an objective for the team to deal with or secure. Enchantress has also had so many variations in the comics, so the guidance of where they're going with her character isn't as clear as it is with, say, Boomerang. Now, based on comments from Cara Delevingne, it's apparent that they're going with the split personalities from the comics, and I'm all on board for that since I've had an opportunity to see more of her acting. Certainly, Delevingne's popularity seems to be a draw at this moment in time. She has nearly 16 million Instagram followers and is exploding onto the scene with 10 of her 14 IMDb credits coming from the past two years. I know that when she was first announced, I wondered who she was and knew her only as a DJ from Grand Theft Auto, and I struggled to find examples of her acting. But now I feel like I see her everywhere, and generally, I'm impressed by what I'm seeing for such a new talent demonstrating natural acting ability. I'm curious to see if they're going to use an American accent or if she's going to stick to her English accent. Maybe I'm only just taking notice now, but she appears to be immensely popular and Brandwatch.com seems to credit the 2 million views Suicide Squad has over BVS in large part to Kara. Now, whether true or not, the character has substantial shots in this first look. We probably get to see a glimpse of only three origins, Harley, Deadshot, and Enchantress, suggesting that their arcs are important to the film. I'm doubtful we'll get origin stories for every character in the film, so the fact that they even shot one for Enchantress seems to elevate her importance. Every one of her shots seems to be filled with a story behind them, from being in a cave and mesmerized by something, to that disturbing image of her upset under a hand-drawn, upside-down, seven-pointed star immersed in a dark liquid, with reeds on either side of her, to her scene with Flag, and then that quickest glimpse of the terrifying Enchantress in what seems to be an ordinary contemporary room. As I've said, I wouldn't be surprised if much of the overall plot revolves around her, which seems to contradict what many people are thinking about this next character, the Joker. An absolute marquee character and the most iconic one in this entire film except for Batman. Yet, despite his cultural impact, I don't think the Joker is going to play as much into this story or the film in the way that I believe Enchantress might. I wonder if Joker is going to be viewed mostly through the lens of Harley, and mostly because you don't need a suicide squad and a platoon of soldiers, a gunship, and two Shinnoks just to take out the Joker. And the Joker doesn't really account for a lot of the things that we've been seeing in the set photos. Nonetheless, Joker gets some significant storytelling shots, a lot of time in this teaser, and some big lines in the big finish. Between that and his stature as an icon, I don't think I could put him any lower on this list. And I also just realized that I didn't put Batman on this list, but I guess I'd rank him around here as well for similar reasons. A character that has less to do with the central story, but is such an icon that their significance is boosted for it. What Batman loses in screen time and connections to the Joker, he makes up in relevance to the DCCU at large and acting as connective tissue to bridge it all together. Joker, Harley, Deadshot, and Croc are all rogues from his gallery, and Katana often has ties, putting Batman's presence on this film, even if he was never in it. If these characters share nothing else, likely they have all tanked
entangled with the bat at one time or another. And I will just about lose my mind if we get the characters sitting around and trading short encounter stories in an homage to that Batman TAS episode, Almost Got Him. I would have got him. Gee, that's too bad, Hoff. But I guess you'll always come in second. Anyone else want to go? There I was, holed up in this quarry. When Batman came nosing around, he was getting closer, closer. And? I threw a rock at him. So, Harvey, what became of the giant Benny? It was a big rock. They actually let him keep it. I can almost imagine David Ayer spending hundreds of hours on casting, pre-production, costume, makeup, and R&D, all so he can include the line, I threw a rock at him. (laughs) Okay, probably not. But Affleck has been spotted on location out of costume, so Bruce Wayne, not just the Batman, may have a role in Suicide Squad as well. And with the Superman name drop and Lex Luthor rumored to be a presence in the film, Suicide Squad is set to be squarely in the DCCU and to build out the world impressively. This isn't a side note or a side story taking place in some far-off corner of the universe, but a story that intersects with Gotham and Midway, the Batman, the government, the supernatural, and DC's deep well of supervillains waiting to be introduced to the movie-going audience. It doesn't mean that Suicide Squad is some tiny piece of a larger ongoing story, necessarily, but it does mean that it's making the world richer for each successive film to draw on. So in this world, for example, you feel the impact of the Joker, even in Batman v Superman, whether or not we see him or if the plots are tied together. Joker, Batman, Gotham, Luther, Superman, the Black Zero event, etc. are all part of the tapestry of this cinematic universe. And I am rambling, aren't I? <laughs> uh, where was I? Okay, Joker, right. Let's talk about that look. Our first look at Joker is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment as he's led through what looks like a drug-bottling plant. But in some other shots, you see some cylindrical objects on conveyor belts and some seemingly well-armed guards. So maybe this is a munitions factory, and I'm going to have to take it back that the Joker can't bring down an aircraft. I don't think so, but some food for thought. Joker's in a black coat with a high collar, and I definitely have to take back the idea that this Joker can get around in the mundane world without getting noticed. That shock of neon green hair, that ghastly pallor, means that you scream, run and hide, or call the cops. He is out of this world and he knows it, as evidenced by the Joker mobile. We can't make it out in the trailer, but he does have custom Joker rims, and he has a gang that's willing to fight to the death for him. He has a body that's covered in intricate tattoos, and he has Harley at his side. Despite his looks, this is a Joker who can make and execute a plan, who has patience, who can accrue wealth and reputation, men and relationships, and he is meant for the long haul. He isn't the unchecked and unfettered embodiment of chaos like Nolan's Joker. This Joker's tattoos are telling. He has the patience to sit still, the pain tolerance to suffer for a statement, and he very much wants to say something. We get that sense from Batman v Superman with the message on the Robin suit. And while this interpretation is definitely different, it's something that's been dying to make it to film. An arch nemesis with history. The ability to go the distance with the Batman, who might have been at this for 20 years. Most of the Jokers we've met until now are just too self-destructive, too undisciplined and chaotic. Candles that burn brightly at both ends. To make it this far with a Batman that's got 50 cows 
knuckles on his car, metal knuckles built into his gloves, and who just might be prone to branding his quarry. So it says something, that this Joker seems to have gone the distance, and he's left his mark on the Batman and his legacy with Harley. So even without expressly spelling all this out, I'm excited at the storytelling potential, or the underlying history and lore between these two. And man, I keep getting derailed by the DCCU at large, but this is a world I want to explore and unravel, and my mind just keeps going there. But let's get back to this first look. Our most substantial look at this Joker is with him shirtless and wearing those purple sterile gloves, and that color tends to be trademarked and is an indication that they're nitrile and not latex for those with allergies to latex. Joker looks like he's prepared to break Dr. Harleen Quinzel. I'll quickly note that these scenes have a point of view sensibility to them, meaning that Harley might be our point of view character, literally in these scenes and figuratively throughout the story as a whole. Maybe. Probably not because we're already privy to some private moments between other characters in this film. I'm still uncertain about my feelings on the look. It's not one that I ever would have imagined on my own, and it's still very confronting. But in the context of this first look, with the grime and the scum and the grit and the graffiti, he fits. He works. He makes a certain kind of sense here. I'm still genuinely disturbed looking at him, and I can't discern if that's dislike or discomfort. In terms of performance, though, I'm completely on board. Again, totally taken by surprise. Nothing that I would have guessed, but I'm really engaged by Leto's choices, which have created this new thing. His physical energy when he's rocking back and forth as he starts his lines, and then a sudden stillness, and then a soothing softness of his voice, coupled by his psychotic and self-satisfied smiling. It's complete and utter nightmare fuel. That voice crawls under your skin and peels your eyelids off, and you're forced to look into his unblinking blue eyes, framed by eyeshadow, and that horrifyingly accented mouth. Metal and lipstick. Bringing back that discomfort and unease of having braces in your mouth or getting tangled in somebody else's... Okay, maybe that's just me, but if you close your eyes and you imagine him, I bet you can picture this Joker's face without much trouble at all. He creates a strong impression. With Ledger and Nicholson, the amount of makeup and prosthetics made Joker's face more of a mask, and in its own way, that put a little distance between us and his madness. If they just take that mask off, we'll be alright. But here, I feel like Joker's naked brain is pressing right up against mine, and I hate it. I think. Like I said, this Joker creeps me out, and I think that's a good thing, but I can't get my lizard brain to stop screaming, kill it, kill it with fire. Okay, I'm being melodramatic, but the point is, I think they found an effective angle on Joker to make that clown that we've all taken for granted to the point of becoming beloved and comfortable with truly terrifying, weird, and confronting, but compelling in his own way, and I'm excited to see how that pans out. Perhaps you're not as squeamish as me, and he makes you want to laugh. Well, he is a clown after all. Anyway, As radical as this Joker is, next on our list is somebody played quite conservatively, Waller. Both in this first look, and I suspect in the film, Waller acts as a framing and expository device. However, despite traditionally playing this role in the comics and in the cartoons, she's always been a compelling character because she's that stubborn consequentialist with a heart of gold. Waller is the logical extension of somebody like Batman, taken to a bureaucratic extreme where the ends justify the means. Yet in 
nearly every version or variant, there's that moment where she draws the line and reminds us that she isn't just driven by sadism, but always for the greater good. And that spark of humanity makes her somebody that we love to hate. Like Batman, she's somebody that's agreed to sacrifice some of her own humanity in order to protect humanity. Waller is somebody that we're so frustrated by because most times she's probably right, even when our heroes are telling us she's wrong. It's crazy that a government official is that interesting, but it speaks to how well the character has been handled and the increasing role of government in superhero comics. A well-meaning and necessary force, but with a cynical and dark underbelly for all those good intentions gone awry. Viola Davis seems to be playing it pitch perfect, someone who can hold her own with an admiral and enjoy a steak in a ritzy restaurant while observing European etiquette, but who can also roll up her sleeves and go into the hole that she threw away and bend some of the most dangerous criminals on earth, the worst of the worst, as she says, to her purposes. Waller has the most lines in this first look, and honestly, I think I could do an entire podcast just breaking down her lines, but since we're so far out, I think we're just going to cover the highlights. Waller has a sense of theater and hyperbole, since she calls her task force the worst of the worst and the most dangerous people on the planet. But that's her style. It's like saying she threw away the hole. She's not a dry and boring robotic administrator. She relishes what she's doing. She takes pride in it, and she enjoys communicating the spirit of what she's doing over accuracy. Simply put, she's got an attitude, and it's awesome. Now, with respect to Superman acting as a beacon, we mentioned above that the occult is powerful but fears men with guns, and why not? Being burned at the stake seemed to be a real fear or consequence for people in different periods past, and not too far removed from the lynch mob or the firing squad. Today's urban riots might replace village folk with pitchforks and torches, as what the strange and the fringe fear about the masses. But Superman's public debut proves that a certain amount of cohabitation is possible. As much as Superman brings on the dawn of the Justice League, that same rationale might cause the creeping of the supervillain out of obscurity. Now Waller is speculating, so we're just speculating on top. Some Somehow, I think the connection between Killer Croc and Superman is probably tenuous. But the other thing that that line shows is that the supernatural and the world of the weird pre-existed Superman. There are abilities and things beyond Kryptonians, and that Waller has seen these things, keeping with the tradition of her being well-connected and informed, often, for example, knowing Batman's secret identity without him disclosing it to her. All of this is encouraging because it makes it less likely that the filmmakers will have to compromise on character, linking their origins or connecting everything to, say, Kryptonians. In a world where Waller has seen these things before Superman ever came onto the scene, it's likely permissible to have a goddess formed of clay. I have a bunch of comments on the deniability aspect, but I think I'm going to save that for future episodes. Again, we're over a year out, people. Now, one last thing I'll note is that Waller explains her control by talking about her own talent that it's what she does, rather than citing some sort of technological mechanism. And again, this plays into her stylized, exaggerated way of speaking. It's not mutually exclusive that getting people to act against their own self-interest may be her job, but it's also true that she's relying on a technological mechanism. But it does perhaps play into the theory that there are no bombs in the head this time around. And if you want to be really pedantic about it, acting because there is a bomb inside your head, well, that's acting in your self-interest isn't it? <laughs> well, Waller might be getting their obedience some other way, which leads us to our next character, Deadshot. I mentioned that out of the 11 shots containing Floyd, 
Three of them were with his daughter, and that seems to be a pretty obvious source of leverage for Waller and the characterization for Deadshot in the film. Our first glimpse of Deadshot shows that he's clearly incarcerated and working out some of his frustrations on a makeshift heavy bag. It's just a short shot, but you can pull from it the idea that Floyd is clever and that he has lateral thinking skills to MacGyver a heavy bag out of his mattress. It shows that he prioritizes fighting fitness over comfort. He'd rather have a mattress in tatters so that he can train and focus his frustrations and his fury. And this shot of controlled fury stands in stark contrast to Harley's aerial ballet and Diablo's trance-like state. Floyd seems to be the man with his eyes open, who sees the situation for what it is. He dubs the team, he recognizes that they're patsies, and he urges them to save the world. In the comics, Deadshot is the de facto field commander of the Suicide Squad. And we kind of get that feeling here too. And we get the feeling that he is a competent and experienced professional a soldier on the wrong side of the law. Perhaps the hitman with a heart of gold is a bit played in cinema right now, but it's authentic to the comics and it plays to Will Smith's talents. Now for me, Will Smith doesn't quite disappear into the role yet, but I think some of that is how quippy his lines were. Smith has been twice nominated for Academy Awards and he has the potential to anchor this. I don't think we've seen enough to judge yet, but there's a great potential for a great performance. In the comics, Floyd has a certain level of irreverence and fatalism that makes him darkly humorous. It's like, I don't know, asking a surgeon to perform open heart surgery with a rubber chicken, and then that surgeon screaming bloody murder at what he's given, and yet he proceeds to complete the surgery successfully anyways or something like that. And so far, we seem to be getting a pretty reserved and stoic take on Deadshot. But that's two lines for a film that's a year out, with plenty of opportunities to show more character between now and then. Will Smith can be incredibly charismatic, and they might be holding that back a little right now so that the film doesn't get pigeonholed prematurely into one of his earlier blockbuster efforts. So despite how much of Deadshot we see, I think his character is still very much under wraps. Now, one character with no shortage of character in this first look is our final and perhaps the most important character, Harley Quinn. I don't know if it's a reflection of the film or the marketing, but this was a very heavy Harley first look. Given the 11 characters that we've looked at, Harley got about one-fourth of the shots and one-fourth of the spoken lines. Even with all the controversy and questions surrounding Leto's Joker, Robbie's Harley seemed to be something nearly universally praised. So I can see this first look wanting to lean on something safe and fan-pleasing. But even then, showing this much of Harley would be a risk if it didn't deliver. The internet might have revolted if Harley didn't come across, but I think most would agree that they've succeeded. It's interesting that even without any of the traditional costume trappings, we get all of Harley in our very first image. Acrobatic, graceful, beautiful, but also crazy and dangerous. An aerial ballet suspended by a straitjacket from prison bars surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards. It's something we've never seen before, but yet so Harley Quinn. We get a sense of how dangerous Harley is based on how she's secured compared to Deadshot and Diablo. And Harley is the first and only squad member to interact with Waller in this first look. And she asks something that is both mad and insightful. Are you the devil? Likely a question that Waller tries not to ask herself, and perhaps a hint that Harley's talents as a psychoanalyst are still on deck 
to be tapped. Now, rather than a breakdown of her many appearances in this trailer, all I'm going to say is that it works and I'm sold. I never doubted Margot Robbie's acting ability on whether she could bring the look to life. My main question surrounding Harley was believing that she had a place on the squad and on the front lines. And even in this first look, they've successfully shown how dangerous and mad she can be. A character with that kind of athleticism and acrobatics seemingly taking on multiple guards can hang with the Suicide Squad beyond just any intel she might have. We get all sorts of glimpses into her crazy, from her choice of heels to playfully pretending a skull-crushing baseball bat is a shotgun, licking a prison bar, laughing madly to herself, gleeful at Batman on the top of their ride, and smashing her head into bars and more. She also has brief, ditzy airhead moments, which make her the source of much of the humor and the levity in this teaser. From a storytelling perspective, it looks like we're going to get her origin, an adventure with the Joker, and some of her incarceration before joining the Suicide Squad. In the recent comics and the cartoons, Harley's ties to the Jokers have perhaps become slightly more ambivalent and allowed her to stand on her own as a character and explore relationships and codependencies, friendships, and recreational romps with other characters like Poison Ivy, Deadshot, Shazam, Power Girl, and more. I think my aversion for clowns might be why I was never a Harley Quinn fanatic, but I appreciate what she means to other people, and I enjoy most Harley stories that I've read. I admire what she represents to the canon of comics, that it needs to be ever-changing, evolving, and open to new ideas and characters. If we insist that Joker is asexual, we never get Harley, and if we insist that Harley is inexorably bound to Joker, we never get her expanded adventures. That levity and irreverent nature of Harley Quinn also allowed her to break the fourth wall and enjoy comical holiday specials, which were always a highlight and a treat since DC retired the normal holiday specials. So I'm always thankful and appreciative that her character lets those still be made. Aside from the array of talent and offbeat characters, I'm really excited about the diversity of this cast. You've got multiple cultural backgrounds, ethnicities, and attitudes. You've got serious girl power, with Waller running the show, Harley a shining star, and the Enchantress set to steal the spotlight. And you've got a great warrior theme going with a paramilitary operation, with a covert government squad supported by soldiers trained to do their job. In the larger scheme of the DCEU, it serves as a strategic segue from the world's finest to Wonder Woman. The strong female characters of the Suicide Squad take some of the weight off of Diana's shoulders, saving her from having to be all things to all women, and a perfect feminist ideal, with variations on that theme already preceding her in Suicide Squad. And the insight gleaned from Suicide Squad's modern warfare may make Wonder Woman's warrior aspects less conspicuous against Superman and Batman. After watching Suicide Squad and things so evil and supernatural that you need to send the squad after that evil, you may well be very happy that there's a Wonder Woman in that world to slay those kinds of monsters. Suicide Squad is something surprising, and it doesn't carry the baggage or the expectation of any of the Justice League members. And while most of the characters have been around since the 80s or so, they've all been subject to enough reinvention that having an open mind about each new take is par for the course. And so the audience is open to being surprised, and these characters can genuinely die to convey the costs and consequences of this universe, to give it a poignancy perhaps not immediately available to many members of the League. It's counter-programming that still builds up the brand. I've always been a fan of titles like Simone's Secret Six, The Suicide Squad, and Demon Knights. There's something delightful about how they're still sincerely wicked, but you grow to root for them, especially when every cool villain of the 90s had a habit of becoming a hero. Venom, Magneto, 
Juggernaut, Emma Frost, Taskmaster, Catwoman, and Deadpool. I get that they're cool and that we want to redeem our favorites, but I enjoyed the bad guys being bad, being themselves, even if good came out of it, rather than being reformed into just another hero. I think Suicide Squad is going to give us balance. There's going to be redemption for those with the heart of a hero under it all, but we're still going to get bad guys, villains, and everything in between. Part of the reason that I keep raising the lack of bombs this time around, perhaps because I think the immensely popular characters like Harley might not have their fates bound to the squad and find their way to freedom and potential future spinoffs by the end of the film. With something like Suicide Squad, your villains get to be villains, and suddenly you get the impression that the DCEU is teeming with them, perhaps letting you get away without having to explain every villain. Sometimes a bad guy can just be a bad guy without an elaborate sympathetic supervillain origin. And it makes sense because the Suicide Squad will have already cemented the idea that these people are out there for the heroes to fight, and that that bigger and richer universe raises the stature of all heroes, and it gives the filmmakers a more interesting sandbox to play in, and is eventually what's going to give us a Superman sequel like we've never seen before. Imagine a Superman film steeped in an active, living, breathing, teeming DC universe with all the heroes and villains galore, where he stands as the first and the greatest of them all, bright and strong even in that world. That's a cinematic Superman that I want to live to see, and different from all the previous takes where he stands as this lonely anomaly, the only spark of magic or fantasy in an otherwise mundane worlds. Imagine a movie where you have the Justice League, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and Batman, but this is a job for Superman. I'm totally okay with them biding their time and building the DCEU to that point to tell that story, because if we jump into a Superman sequel too soon, all we're getting is those Superman films of the past, or that sort of disconnected Marvel-flavored standalone films that perhaps don't quite appreciate how much they all impact the world. Okay, I can't stop rambling. I'm just so excited about the potential of these films. There's so much more to say about Suicide Squad, but I promised I'd do a mailbag, so uh, let's try to go through as many of these questions as I can. As usual, the mailbag is not heavily produced, so I apologize in advance for tangents and editorializing and rambling, which is sure to follow. A sincere thanks for your patience on some of these questions which have been asked a long time ago. Okay, first up, we have longtime listener Maggie, who's written in questions for literally every episode episode. Thank you. Even if I don't tackle them all in the mailbag, they definitely provoke thought and inspire some of the segments in the podcast or the blog. So Maggie asks, basically, given how long Batman holds a grudge, how can these two bury the axe? Um, that's not right. It's axe to grind and bury the hatchet, right? <laughs> At least I didn't say uh, bury the beef. Okay, never mind. Um, thank you for that question. <laughs> Um, on the internet, perhaps we encounter more people who forget to show each other grace. For some, it seems more important to stick to their position rather than get along, forgive, or move on. And sometimes you see the same handful of people debate the exact same issue endlessly in some kind of Sisyphean torment loop. However, in the real world, people have misunderstandings and clear them up, or they have conflicts and they resolve them. And throughout history, many one-time enemies become long-time allies, and this pattern is reflected in our lore and in our pop culture. Um, when the Beastman in Kidu is sent to kill that Superman Gilgamesh, the two battled fiercely, but then they became like brothers. Uh, in the Journey to the West, the Monkey King, or Song Wukong, gathers his companions through battle. Uh, both King Arthur and 
Robin Hood routinely increased their ranks of their round table and their merry men respectively through competition and contests with their rivals who then became their loyal allies. We've got the U.S. and Britain, um, Shields and Lincoln, Foreman Ali, Ward and Gotti, uh, and my favorite, Apollo and Rocky. Um, more recently, the Fast and the Furious, Brian and Dominic, right? <laughs> um, and of course, just about every time superheroes encountered each other for the first time in the comics, right? It even happened in the recent Avengers movie. So all I'm saying is that there is a long tradition of <laughs> squashing beef after a battle, and I don't see why Batman can't partake in that. We only have the vague contours of their conflict, so we don't know how it's going to be resolved just yet, but I'm pulling for Wonder Woman to be part of that peacemaking process so that that aspect of her character is reflected in the film as well. We know all of this is for the Justice League, so Batman and Superman are going to have to get along, at least well enough to work together on the League, even if they aren't the best of friends by the end of Batman v Superman. Between Wonder Woman, the third act threat, uh, the machinations of Luthor, I think there's going to be more than enough there to justify them going from combatants to comrades. And another observation which might predispose the son of Jor-El to respect and it admire Batman is the similarity between Jor-El and Batman. Think about it for a second. Jor-El is this swashbuckling warrior genius from a family of prestige who commits a secret antisocial taboo while unafraid to be banded outlaw. His martial skills defy convention. His preparations are extensive and extreme and viewed by others as paranoid, but ultimately proven correct. He has all the best tech. He has tragically lost his family. And by the time Clark encounters him, there's a certain cold stoicism to his exterior, but his actions are of a passionate man. Now, I don't think the parallels are going to be that stark in the film, but there's an underlying rationale for Superman to want to draw from Batman's experience and to be his ally. Well, next up, uh, I got an email from Chris wanting to know if I would like to see a live action adaptation of Kingdom Come. And I guess it depends on the degree of adaptation. If it borrows the themes and the imagery, I'm probably okay with that. But I don't think we need that particular story in the DCEU at this time. Kingdom Come was very much a commentary and a critique of the 90s eras of comics. And that message isn't quite as clear today, nearly 30 years after the fact. The character Magog was sort of a send up of Cable and Shatterstar mashed up together. However, today, characters like Cable and Deadpool are revered as part of the tapestry of comics history. If you could find a more salient message that doesn't become old guys getting angry at new things, it might be more for a general audience. And don't get me wrong, I love Kingdom Come, and I cherish my signed Absolute Edition. But I think the layers and the meaning of the story were very specific to its time. The main thing I'd like out of something like Kingdom Come is that sincerely epic and operatic scope where you have that sort of lived in, saturated with superheroes universe being taken seriously with gravity and with consequences. Those heroes were aging. Uh, generations were springing up and things were taken to their logical conclusion rather than being swept under the rug or reset to some status quo. We've already discussed earlier this episode how the DCEU can bring us a totally different take on a Superman sequel, and that's what I want out of it. That same kind of 
feel that you get from reading Kingdom Come or any other epic DC event book, where it's overflowing with characters and history that you can't possibly know all at once, but make you feel like there's this whole hidden world to dive into, to explore and learn about and immerse yourself into. It's an exciting kind of disorientation that draws you into those worlds, like when you land in a new city for the first time. I didn't make the comparisons earlier, but basically I'd love if the DCEU sort of had the feeling of Star Wars, where not everything is explained, but so much crazy stuff just crosses your path and you just know that there's a whole story there, even if it isn't on screen. Man of Steel totally captured that with Krypton and many of the supporting cast, that unspoken and unseen stories for the Kents, Lois, Perry, and so on, but with all of that turned up to 11 using DC's rich lore. That's the sensation I get when I'm watching Watchmen or picking up those epic DC event books where there's more history than you'd ever have time to know. I like that sense, and it sounds like what they want for the DCEU, to have this ancient and rich depth to it. Uh, Chris also asked if I think Superman and Wonder Woman are going to fight, and I'm on the fence. On one hand, I feel like if they don't, it's going to be a perpetual question, and it seems really hard to pass up that opportunity. But on the other hand, I think the third act threat might satiate those kinds of questions and urges, but I'm pretty sure Wonder Woman is going to command the respect of Superman and Batman and I'll leave it at that. Sapiwe wants to know the death toll in Metropolis, and I don't think we have any hard figures yet. We have some estimates of questionable veracity and unknown calculation. We do get some more concrete clues through the Wayne Tower article in the BVS Comic-Con trailer, but I think this might be something that we either learn later on, or which benefits from a degree of ambiguity. At a certain point, our ability to conceive of or conceptualize tragedy is numbed by numbers. We might recognize the horror of a family of six dying compared to an individual death, but 7,000 dying instead of 6,000? At that point, the storytelling is more important than the stats, so I hope that's where the film stays focused. That said, listener Phil has provided an analysis for the damage in the comments on the blog. You should check that out. Uh, Sam wants to know why Superman was hovering over the rescuees in the trailer and not just rushing in to rescue them, which is a great question, and I think the real reason is that it's part of a montage and we're not going to see the mechanics of every rescue. But as apologetics, I think that Superman is assessing the situation. Basically, how do you save all those people? If we assume the same limitation on his powers, like he can't travel at super speed with people in his arms without them suffering, or that he can only carry so many people to safety at a time, it's not necessarily an easy thing to triage. Who do you transport first, and how do you feel if they get caught up while you're transporting somebody else? So if it's not a montage, the way I'd love Superman to solve this is to change the course of a mighty river in reference to the adventures of Superman. While he might not necessarily have the tools to evacuate an entire neighborhood of people on their roofs, we've seen that he can shatter mountaintops, and that might be useful in diverting a flood. Maybe. These are the scenes that the general audiences really need to connect with the image of Superman saving people, and it looks like we're going to get them. In a film that takes nothing for granted, we're going to see why Metropolis considers Superman their savior, and builds monuments to him. We're going to see why people would travel all the way to Washington just to hold up a sign and support, why people paint his symbol in the hopes of rescue, why people yearn to touch him, and how even Alfred can recognize he's not the enemy, and why Lois would want to live with him and love him. But we're also going to see Batman's concerns, and if Batman has played the villain a bit, I think that's a smart play because his mythos can take it. It's sort of how he fits into the league. He's the one that thinks about these things and who crosses the line 
for what he perceives to be the good of all. When Superman takes on the League and conquers the planet in King of the World, it's a little bit of an embarrassing footnote, and we try to forget that Donna Troy dies in that episode. Yet when Batman's contingencies take down the League, it's heralded again and again as an achievement. We're willing to forgive Batman being the bad guy more, and all indications are that the filmmakers understand that. I think Batman's going to have his reasons, and they're going to be understandable, but I think it's also obvious that he's on the side of the debate that involves destroying one-third of the Trinity, and that the title says Dawn of Justice, so cooperation ultimately prevails. We mentioned Kingdom Come before, we mentioned Star Wars, we mentioned Man of Steel, and generally my attitude is that we can have all this conflict, turmoil, and trouble as long as you have hope in the end. And I think that's something that all those stories share in common, and which lets them push to the edge, because we know, in the end, it doesn't end with Batman executing Superman, or with Superman as a tyrant. The hope is right there in the title to let us enjoy where the story is going to take us. And incidentally, there's a certain amount of research which indicates that contrary to the connotation of the term, spoilers actually increase our enjoyment of certain fiction under the right circumstances, which partially accounts for how much is revealed in advertising. But I'll let you do that research on your own. I think it was re-raised in a recent Verge ESP episode, but that research has been widely reported for about the past five years. Even so, I always struggle between wanting to know more or not. And I think there's something to a healthy desire to delay gratification, but I don't really take a position on it right now. Okay, speaking of trying to know more, um, Godzilla L is trying to pinpoint when does Superman tear those doors off of Batman's car? And obviously we don't know, but my guess is that that is their first face-to-face meeting. Uh, Last episode, I think I naturally approached the trailer with a Superman-heavy emphasis, but remember that Batman has his point of view too. We know that Bruce is witness to what Kryptonians can do, and that that makes an indelible impression on him. However, I don't think he sits there just bearing a grudge against Superman for that specific incident. It just doesn't make sense for him to twiddle his thumbs while statues are built in Superman's honor, leaving his tower unavenged. That's why I take the position that Bruce is concerned about what Superman could do, not what he did do. I imagine the Batman does prepare some contingencies. There has to be some inciting incident which triggers Batman to have the crisis of conscience, which crosses him over from reactive to judge, jury, and executioner. So my read of that scene is that it's after the respective views are expressed and Batman's action sequence at Gotham Gas draws Superman out to that scene so that they have this encounter. And something about this encounter and some later inciting incident galvanizes Batman to action and the decision to go into a preemptive war. And that's when Alfred, perhaps helping to weld the doors back onto the Batmobile, tries to dissuade Bruce. Maybe, I don't know. I imagine Batman's arc is something like this. He's dealt with the weird before in this world, with characters like the Suicide Squad. And you consider that Batman the successor to all the Batman that we've already seen on film. However, that teeming DC universe that we talked about above with Superman, that's what this Batman is turning the corner on. This is the first time that Batman is going to be entering that world, turning that corner, and embodying that sort of Grant Morrison Batman, or perhaps the Justice League Batman, who's able to deal with these threats on this scale. But it's a process. So the arc for Batman in this film is to take him from being that street-level vigilante to superhero. Batman v Superman is the first time that he's personally encountered power on this scale. When he sees that tower fall, internally, he's already accepted responsibility for taking on the Kryptonians. He's not waiting for or expecting Superman to stop Zod, and he's not waiting for or expecting the government to stop Zod either. If Batman was that kind of person to rely on the government, 
he wouldn't have spent his career trying to clean up Gotham. He would have left it to the government. Think of it this way. There have always been threats that are bigger than Batman. War, poverty, hunger, and natural disasters. But he always focused on Gotham's war on crime. Until this turning point, when mentally he said, it's my job to take those Kryptonians out. That's the moment when Batman steps beyond being a vigilante detective and into the realm of superhero. So Batman's arc continues through the upgrades and the preparations to justify and explain how a mortal man can participate with the League. And we're going to see his research, his tenacity, his upgrades after we're given a reason for him to go after Superman specifically. And I think that segues pretty well into Jason's question. Jason asks about Affleck and John's writing Batman. And personally, I'm a little conflicted about John's who has simultaneously written some of my favorite comics ever, as well as some of my most upsetting comics ever. So his attachment isn't something that I can give an unqualified seal of approval to yet, yet I can't help but be excited because these two are complete comic book nerds. Affleck completely adores the character and Johns has a huge respect for Batman, tempered by wanting to see the rest of the DC universe elevated to Batman's stature in popular culture. This tag team has incredible writing potential. I think Terrio is also an incredible writer, but my understanding is that he comes to comics as an outsider, something of an anthropological historian, as an obsessive compulsive researcher, which is what you want for this sort of semi-skeptical Man of Steel approach, which views these mythologies with a degree of objectivity and distance so that everyone can engage and not just the comic diehards. But Batman doesn't need that kind of approach. And I say this a little glibly, but even the people who don't like Batman like Batman, which is part of the reason why I said earlier that he can be played the villain somewhat and be forgiven for it. So Affleck and Johns can go full nerd and Affleck and Johns at their best is something potentially historic. I mean, Affleck is literally an Academy Award winning screenplay writer and Johns is DC's chief creative officer for a reason. While Affleck has proven that he can pull off that triple threat of writing, acting, and directing all at once, visual effects may still be new to him. However, it's something that he got to sit in and learn from one of the best directors in that respect. Snyder, who has an incredible grasp of the marriage between film and visual effects. And of course, he can also lean on his second unit directors to execute that kind of stuff. Now, some have suggested that Affleck avoid visual effects in order to play to his strengths, and I'm okay with that so long as he's following his passion and his muse. But my personal preference is for Batman to step into and embrace wholeheartedly that world of the superhero. If the entire universe has turned this corner after Superman, Wonder Woman, and the League, let's see a Batman who is a superhero but without the camp of Batman and Robin. I know a lot of people want to revisit that lone vigilante, perhaps with a detective slant, but I think a serious superhero is a slightly newer interpretation and something that we've yet to see. And I think that links up nice to Leon's question. Uh, Leon wants to know if these characters are open to interpretation, and I'm sure that question was rhetorical. Of course they are. However, never has my belief in that been so reinforced than in these past two weeks in absorbing all these uh, interviews from the death of Superman Lives What Happened, uh, the extras that came with Justice League Gods and Monsters, and listening to Dan Jurgens on We Talk Comics. In all those interviews, hearing from Kevin Smith, Grant Morrison, Bruce Tim, Jeff Johns, Alan Burnett, and Dan Jurgens all repeating that same idea again and again on how mythology benefits from and is honored by varying interpretations was amazing. Sorry, I'm going to totally hijack Leon's question, which seemed more about confronting the closed-minded, uh, just so that I can praise these things that I've been enjoying recently. Dan Jurgens weighed in on Superman killing in the comics and then explained why Man of Steel handled it a little bit better. I just talked about 
about Jeff Johns. And one of the things that was really encouraging about the Gods and Monsters features was how Tim and Burnett found themselves slightly stumped with the story structure, but then they invited Johns to look it over and they say that he straightened it out for them in a way that clicked. Gods and Monsters also included this great featurette on the imaginary stories and Elseworlds, which really appreciates their history and their contribution to the larger mythos. These alternate realities or these Elseworlds are not just in the comic books. You know, we're seeing it in the movies. The Christopher Nolan trilogy of films is a Batman Elseworlds. The Arkham Games is an Elseworlds. Smallville is its own universe. It's got Green Arrow characters in it, but it's not the same Green Arrow that's in the Arrow comics, which are based on the TV show, or in the Green Arrow comics in the DC Universe. They're all different versions of the same kind of characters, and they all have subtle little differences that each reader can pick and choose which one is their favorite. So it's really neat that we get to explore those different things, and I don't know, I think people are getting a little bit more savvy that, oh, there's all these different versions of the same thing. If somebody likes the Smallville comic, you shouldn't force them to like the regular Superman continuity comics. This is about offering choices and places for people to get the version of the characters that we do the way they like it the best. And I think the readers are sophisticated enough to tell the difference and, again, find their flavor. That's what's great about Gods and Monsters. It's another flavor to try. And the cool thing about the DC Universe is that you can call them Elseworlds and imaginary stories, but the truth is because of the multiverse and the existence of all these parallel worlds, every one of these actually is a place we can go to and interact with. So I'm totally biased. You know, I buy these Blu-rays just for their commentary tracks, but I enjoyed Gods and Monsters and doubly so under an Elseworlds lens. It has that feeling that I keep talking about of a larger universe with more stories to uncover. And it's that theme that we keep talking about through this episode. And I'm looking forward to seeing if it keeps going forward. And it doesn't hurt that Tim made several comments which could be applied as defenses for Man of Steel pretty easily. We wanted a sense of realism and it wasn't just to be shocking and it wasn't just to make it all seem more adult or whatever that means actually it's probably more realistic view of what the situation would be if they actually existed superheroes existed to me it's like if a superhero is out doing his job he's basically a super cop he's got that responsibility you know and if a cop is out on the street and there's an innocent person about to be killed by a criminal and the cop has his weapon. Not only does he have the right to use lethal force, but he has the obligation to use lethal force to stop the bad guy. When Batman first showed up in like late 1930s, he had a gun, people forget this, he had a gun and he used to go around shooting criminals. There's a famous panel of him saying, you know, tell me now or I'll kill you. They quickly, you know, kind of softened him up and they gave him the kid's sidekick. And then before you knew it, he was basically, you know, not even the dark Avenger of, of, of evil anymore. He was just kind of a guy. Superman also was really, really violent in his early days. Um, so this code against killing, it, it totally made sense in a 1940s context when you were deliberately aiming those comics at kids. But in, in, in the 21st century, I don't know that it makes that much sense anymore. I mean, every, every other aspect of comics has kind of grown up. They treat everything else with a certain amount of adult gravitas, but we still have this you know, 70-year-old code against, oh no, a guy wearing long underwear can't ever kill anybody. 
It's the same for The Death of Superman Lives What Happened. Even if it wasn't necessarily the Superman movie that you wanted to see, you can understand why they wanted to push the envelope in certain places, and you get insight into the larger Superman mythos, and you get to hear master storyteller Kevin Smith, as well as Grant Morrison. Now, Morrison isn't really a fan of Man of Steel, but he acts like the model dissenter by recognizing the intentions of the filmmakers rather than just dismissing them as something that he dislikes. He's able to take a step back and then to recognize the story of superheroes in this moment and analyze it from that perspective. And perhaps maybe elsewhere, he'll be less generous. But in that interview, his insights were really interesting. All in all and all together, they were a crash course in keeping your mind open so that you can really enjoy more of what's out there. Of course, without going anywhere that deep, The Death of Superman Lives What Happens is a cautionary tale and it provides insight into how the process is different or not today. I really encourage you guys to pick them up and to support these films. And by the same token, if you're enjoying exclusive photos and articles from the press, try to support that magazine and pick it up. I know in an era of free information, we take our ability to see exclusive content almost for granted. But, you know, to show your appreciation, if you enjoyed it by getting a legit copy so that they can keep bringing us these shots, these interviews and insights. And of course, I'm talking about the Empire magazine feature on Batman v Superman, which gave us a plethora of new images and details to talk about. Unfortunately, I'm so short on time. I think I'll have to save that for when I have more time to ruminate on it. And I only got my copy this morning, but it seems like everything of substance has already been widely reported, but I'm going to look it over again and uh, we'll come back to it. Jen asks about Chris Pine. I know that I have some new listeners. So my general rule is that I don't talk about casting until we have solid confirmation, either from a press release or from the lips of those involved. It's just an arbitrary line that I drew to limit what I have to talk about. I mean, imagine if I discussed candidates like like when there were half a dozen actors up for Spider-Man, I'd be talking about each one for about five minutes, meaning half an hour down the drain, especially if none of them got it. So I'd rather talk about things that are slightly more concrete or that I find interesting. Um, let me just fast attack these last few questions before I have to run. Jonathan is wondering about the Robin rumors and sorry, John, this falls into my rule above. We'll talk about it if and when the casting is more concrete, but to put a little more meat on this bone, uh, let's ask whether we're going to have a Robin scene in the film. And I I'm inclined to say maybe leaning towards yes. Look, you can't have that thing sitting in the movie and Bruce looking at it and the camera cutting close up to it and leave that unexplained for a general audience. Now for us, the comic book fans, you can say no more and we'll bring all that history and that meaning into that shot and that's all you need. But for everyone else, you're asking them to start whispering during the movie and to ask you to explain it. This isn't an Easter egg like a Wayne or Luther logo and it isn't self-explanatory like a Superman statue. We don't necessarily need the story or the origin of a statue because we know why people raise statues and we know why people defile them. But we don't know why somebody would present a defiled costume in their bat cave. Now, how that's answered might mean seeing Robin, but it could also be as simple as a line like, in honor of my fallen partner. Or maybe you have Barbara Gordon asking, do you still have that morbid thing in your cave? Now, while the latter doesn't explicitly explain the costume, it becomes a memorial in the mind of somebody who didn't know what it was. But maybe it's just me, but I think that for this film, uh, less is more with Robin, but we'll see. Uh, Nate is asking if I'm backing <laughs> uh, DCEU over DCCU. Uh, for now, I'm just doing both until we get a more explicit use of the DCEU from Warner Brothers. I suspect we'll ultimately be shifting over to that, but I'm not totally jumping ship yet. Uh, incidentally, a shout out to the subreddit DC underscore cinematic. If 
you're a fan of this stuff, they've got a great community and moderation team. You should subscribe today. And I definitely appreciate their support of Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I know a lot of you have said you discovered the site through DC Cinematic. So a big thanks to them. Man, so much more to talk about, but too little time. Uh, I literally have to run. I literally have to run. Um, so I'm going to cut it off here. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Here are some shows I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener, and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered, or insights that you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.
Answer, son.